to Ufahamu Africa, a podcast about life and politics on the African continent. My name is Kim Dion, and I'm your host. I'm joined by Ufahamu Africa's co-producer, Sarah Agatoni. So, Agatoni, yeah. it's a bad week for opposing presidents in Uganda and Zambia. No, it's a bad time. Yeah. So starting with Uganda, outspoken scholar Stella Nyanzi has been arrested. She was charged with cyber harassment and offensive communication. The state prosecutor also applied to have Nyanzi committed to a mental hospital. A Ugandan TV reporter, Gertrude Uwitware, was kidnapped and beaten following her coverage of the dispute between Stella Nyanzi and First Lady Janet Museveni, who also happens to be the Minister of Education. While Uwitare is now safe, Nyanzi remains in state custody. Her family and team of lawyers have sanctioned an online fundraising campaign, which we link to on our website. So moving to Zambia, the main opposition figure, former presidential candidate Hakaende Hichilema, known popularly as HH, was arrested for treason this week. It turns out it's a treasonous act not to give way to the president's motorcade. There's this BBC video of this whole bizarre incident where um, HH's convoy is headed somewhere and President Edgar Lungu's convoy is trying to overtake HH's convoy and uh, there's like sirens and they aren't yielding to the president. And it's apparently this act that then leads police uh, to later tear gas HH's compound until he comes out and and then arrest him for, for treason. Wow. So Treason is a strong word, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Apparently, let the president pass you or it's treason. I haven't seen the video myself. Did uh, yeah. HH see the president? Like, so it- it's unclear, right? From the video, I don't know. Uh, you know, I mean, because motorcades, convoys have multiple cars and vehicles in them. Right. So I don't know who's making decisions about what, if anyone knows that it's, I mean, there was a car with blue lights. I don't mm. know if it was so obvious that it was the president. But yeah. who knows? Picking up from there, a BuzzFeed piece by Edith Hannan, who reports from Zanzibar on how where there was once a quasi-tolerant atmosphere for individuals who identify as part of the LGBT community, now there is active aggression. Mm-hmm. And so the piece is titled How Tanzania is Cracking Down on LGBT People and Getting Away With It. You know, following from last week's episode with Constantine Manda, where we spoke about authoritarianism in Tanzania. Right. So this piece provides a more personal account of how some gay people are faring under this presidency. It's not been good. The aggression takes many forms, including forced anal exams um, to determine whether someone has been engaging in homosexual acts, which is... Yeah, I read that part of the article and yeah. I physically cringed. I couldn't right. believe that this was Not happening. only has this like been shown to be ineffective it's also like very inhuman right this also goes to public threats of outing uh, right publicly outed and also serving time and this is all supported from the top right you got the deputy minister of health of tanzania in support of most of these policies indeed enacting them and so it's it's rough um it's rough everywhere not just for opponents of politicians but for citizens yeah, you know, what's interesting about this piece that Edith Honan has written is that, you know, she makes connections to other African countries where there has been kind of similar aggression towards 
the LGBT community and or to, to sexual minorities or even to people suspected, right? And she says, you know, in those other places, there's an election around the corner, but that's just not the case in Tanzania. Right. I also, you know, when reading this piece was thinking of our conversation with Constantine Manda mm-hmm. about this you know, authoritarian turn that we're seeing in Tanzania. It is scary because, you know, people have been living with social disapproval for a while now. Technically, homosexuality is uh, illegal in Tanzania. You could face 30 to life. But what is different now is that people are actively being sought out, uh, even when they're just sitting at a bar, for instance, or, you know. For a birthday party. For a birthday party. Yeah. Yeah. Something that's supposed to be celebratory. Exactly. And so where once you had, you know, places where gay people could be themselves, that is quickly disappearing. Yeah. And I also think one more thing that's worth mentioning is the LGBT people in Tanzania seem doubly impacted by whatever the political atmosphere is right now in Tanzania. Because on one hand, you have the government, right, doing all this. Right. And on the other hand, you have outspoken critics of the government, um, including artists, rappers, who do not leave room for queerness in their revolution. Right. So it is, yeah, it is interesting to have people who are fighting for the rights of Tanzanians, but only some Tanzanians. One last thing I'll say about this piece was there was some focus as well on the health implications right. of this crackdown, right, and that people are not able to seek the kind of health care that they had before and that this could be dangerous just as generally as a public health issue. Exactly. And I'll bring something up kind of on public health in East Africa, moving up to Kenya. David Evans of the World Bank points to a recent story about sex workers in Kenya uh, making demands of researchers. And I found it really interesting. Right, right. I did see this. Yeah. And so the title of the blog post is What Do Researchers Owe Their Participants? And he talks about a, a piece that he read that reported on Nairobi sex workers wanting to establish a code of conduct for researchers in an attempt to get some benefit from the decades of studies they have taken part in. And I mean, and he mentions Melissa Gaboyas' work and, and I was thinking of her work as well. But, you know, in all of the HIV AIDS research that I've read over the years, so much of it actually focuses on studies that have been conducted where the study population were sex workers in Nairobi. Right. And, you know, I think about all of this research that's being done about them, but not necessarily research that's being done for them. Exactly. Check out our website, ufahamuafrica.com, Monday morning, when we'll post links to the pieces we've mentioned here, as well as bonus links to other things we found interesting. In remembrance of the genocide in Rwanda in April 1994, in this week's episode, we speak with Rwandan filmmaker Kivu Rahorahosa. His debut film, Grey Matter, which came out in 2011, won the jury special mention for the Best Emerging Filmmaker at the 2011 Tribeca Film Festival. His second film, Things of the Aimless Wanderer, which was released in 2015, was selected to the Sundance Film Festival, among other prestigious festivals. Your movie, Grey Matter, navigates the national trauma of the 1994 genocide. What motivated your choice of using personal memory over collective memory, which is often seen in Rwandan society? When I made Grey Matter, I didn't have the resources and uh, experience to make the war film that I wanted to make. And I didn't want to portray the entire population. That was me recognizing the impossibility of uh, tackling a collective memory. I wanted to make a film that would be very humble and sincere and show damaged individuals and still find creative ways for me to talk about the larger context, which was an entire ethnic group suffering from trauma. 
I wanted to stick to a maximum of three characters because the context was, was that of uh, extreme isolation after the genocide. There was an impossibility to bring to surface all this pain and anger and confusion that was just growing in survivors. And I had seen a few films where the directors had chosen collective memory and had failed to do anything artistically interesting. So I thought the only logical thing for me to do was looking at individuals and not looking at groups. You do have dialogue and grey matter, but it's first. And this is a bit similar, actually, to Things of the Aimless Wanderer, your second feature where you have the same minimalist choices. Do you think these are things that distinguish your works as an artist? I think that bad dialogue is absolutely inexcusable, especially in the context of Rwanda and in the psychological context of my characters in those two films that you mentioned. As the genocide ended, we were left with a few months of terrifying calm where people had to now realize what they had survived. So using symbolism, again, was me trying to hint at a cultural intimacy I felt that I was going to have with the Rwandan audiences because that really meant it was to be seen in Rwanda, although it had much more success internationally. So it was again me acknowledging that Rwandans are going to understand this because everything that I'm referencing resonates with them. But what I realized and what I'm trying to fix with my current projects, because I mean, I'm still learning, is that Rwandans didn't understand the symbolism and they didn't understand the content, but they didn't necessarily get the packaging. And then internationally, audiences understood the structure of the film, the experimental approach to narration, but they didn't get the symbolism. I didn't think I had done my job properly, and I tried to fix a few of that in uh, Things of the Endless Wanderer, where I still have less dialogue, but the symbolism can be much more uh, universally accessible. And I think in London culture, we thought to be like the Japanese of Africa, basically, we're very quiet. And, um, <laughs> that is true. I've been telling him. <laughs> Does London cinema as a whole have any such distinguishing markers? So London cinema is still in its infancy. I don't like calling it a film industry because there are lots of people making films, but we don't yet have the structured industry where you have institutions that support the creators or to support education or support distribution or to regulate. We have none of that. But we have people making films and amazing efforts being made to regulate the industry. Yeah, so right now, it's still very erratic in its aesthetics. There's no uniformity and movements where you could see uh, patterns. Or I've taught several classes in London. Every summer, I used to teach uh, screen writing and directing classes. And my students have been working together a lot. And I see some of them now liberating themselves from the necessity of making films that educate that kept encouraging them to look at uh, the only art form that I feel like we really master in Rwanda, which is poetry, and to trust their audiences to understand complex stories. Because uh, when you recite a really cheap poem, Rwandan audiences look through you and then they get really disappointed. So we got used to poetry being so complex, and I don't see why we can't do the same with cinema. There's a small group of Rwandan filmmakers who are now relying more on poetry where you can start seeing it in the way they edit the films or in the way they have a dialogue. That's so unrealistic, but that's chosen by them. And it's interesting. I guess maybe in five years we could start seeing trends and I could maybe answer this question in a different way. 
So I wanted to follow up on something that you had talked about saying that, you know, making a film can be expensive and saying that there's not necessarily an institutional structure in Rwanda that that is particularly supportive of the kinds of needs that filmmakers may have. And I'm sure that's the case in other African countries. And for the sake of those budding filmmakers in other places, how do you navigate the challenges of resource constraints in making your work? So my advice would be to be very strategic, to not just be a writer-director, but to also be a producer, to understand uh, the business side of the film industry, to understand what does the market want, and how can the market be surprised uh, into buying something that's original, uh, how can audiences be tricked into uh, spending money on something that's, that's necessarily what people think they want. Yeah, so being a producer also means being a very responsible filmmaker and having budgets always in the back of mind because we happen to not be French. The French spend incredible amounts of money on film. So my philosophy is to refuse to be nostalgic of the realities I never knew. And I never knew shooting like on 35 millimeter to make a film. So I embraced digital very quickly. But again, I treated it with the utmost respect. That's one way. Some people are perfectly happy to do uh, educational cinema. I don't know if it really ends up educating, but that's what they call it. One can approach NGOs, churches, governments. Yeah, so that kind of propaganda cinema is much easier to make. One can raise interesting amounts of money to make films and be able to enjoy a career as a filmmaker. Not all of us have to have the same paths. So I want to revisit this idea of educational films, right? Do you think that art as a medium has room for political commentary? And what types of censorships might artists face in doing that? So sometimes we feel these pressures to contribute to national development and to uh, reconciliation efforts. The kind of cinema sometimes that some of us want to make might come across as frivolous and useless while all efforts in all fields in broken nations are supposed to be put to good use. I'm using big quotes here. This kind of pressure can lead to self-censorship. Paranoia often leads to zeal from some representatives of the authority. Uh, this pressure to uh, to use um, my medium or uh, to to educate and to support the educators, which are necessarily the state and the church. Um, personally, I refuse it because I think that a citizen whose mind has been poisoned over 50 years by toxic ideology and toxic education, and that you're not going to fix them with a 90 minutes film. It doesn't work like that. I fight to keep making cinema that, that is humble and uh, uh, unassuming. I don't mind them to change anything. I think it's funny you don't think your movies are political because as your audience, I receive them as such. And maybe um, political commentary can be a happy byproduct of art. Absolutely. We can have that. In Grey Matter, when we have a survivor who has to give sexual favors to get uh, medicine for her brother who suffered from uh, a severe trauma, so those things happened in Rwanda, or in things of the endless wanderer. Like, I can't be sure again the paranoia that I was talking about and how um, sometimes leads to terrible consequences. Yeah, so I use those human um, experiences. So I want to revisit this idea of audience, especially for African arts, because there seem to be almost two truths at the same time. On one hand, art from African countries seems scarce. On the other hand, it seems like art is being created, but there is a bottleneck that happens on the supply side of things. 
So how do you engage with being an audience for Rwandan and African art and then seeking an audience for your own work? I really like being instinctive and disorganized in my way of discovering new work. There is a lot of art coming from uh, uh, many African countries. But again, we have access to so much coming from all parts of the world. And we tend to think that there's not enough coming from Africa, but I really think that there's so much coming from uh, from the continent right now, in terms of film and, and music and paintings and comic books. But the trouble is that uh, this content and, and, and this knowledge hasn't been organized in a particular way that's um, maybe easily accessible. Sometimes I read a few websites, and uh, it's the same kind of aesthetic, Africa rising, Africa emerging kind of aesthetic, I got very discouraged very quickly with those um, websites, unfortunately. I mean, like the in-flat magazines kind of aesthetics, just like fabrics and then uh, gorgeous-looking people are taking a picture in front of uh, I don't know, a tree, and then yeah, and it's supposed to be... Uh, <laughs> An acacia tree. Specific. <laughs> yeah, what's brought to us as audiences, so many times it tends to be uh, just superficial, and then you add that your magical, beautiful. Fun to relate sometimes, and very superficial. Come across lots of interesting work from the continent that I don't necessarily see on from these leading websites. So, as a creator of content, my only way to find a solid methodology is that with audiences right now. Of course, I'm going to use it as social media, but I'm also going to be um, super careful in the way that I choose my sales agent and my distributors. Distributors or producers who approach you. Just because uh, it's, it's very cool right now to have on your slate one black film. So if I'm number 10, I'd rather yeah, go to a small distributor where I'm going to be number two and uh, have all the, um, have try to get as much attention to my film as possible. But this time, um, I will make all the efforts to, uh, uh, to get the film um, to African audiences. Unfortunately, it will have to be, it would probably have to be through the, um, Institut Francais, Institut Francais, because, uh, the Institut Francais, uh, or, yes, uh, uh, French Institute is, um, yeah, they have, um, they have a chain of cinemas and culture, in the cultural centers across Africa and they go to institutes. Otherwise, um, it's the multiplexes that you find in Lagos and Nairobi and that uh, they don't, um, most of the time, even films that are really successful that African audiences want to watch, um, most of the time they, um, they just remove them to replace them with a four or with a iron mask. My iron mask. I like iron yes. mask. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah. No, it's a, it's a film that you can easily find, um, like, right. yeah, anywhere. So, yeah. So if, uh, if it's, yeah. The, um, but, and then Western audiences, it's the same thing again. Um, a, the good thing with uh, North America is that they even have, um, educational distribution channels where you can negotiate with multiple universities and then if you have a good distributor again and, uh, get your film to, uh, to screen at multiple universities. But again, then your film ends up in the hands of academic or the most dissected and make you say things that you never intended to say. You'd rather bring it to normal audiences. Not that you guys are not normal audiences. <laughs> but yeah, normal audiences, academic audiences, I mean, yeah, a little bit of, uh, of what uh, never hurts. Those are all the questions we had prepared. All right, thank you, Kivu. Take care. Find us online and tell us what you're reading and learning about the continent. We're at ufahamuafrica.com or on Twitter at ufahamuafrica. Ufahamu Africa is a production of Smith College, sponsored by the Committee on Faculty Compensation and Development.
Sarah Agatoni, Smith College Class of 2017, is Ufahamu Africa's co-producer. Nikki Okondo, Smith College Class of 2018, is our research and production assistant. Technical assistance is provided by the Center for Media Production at Smith College. Music is courtesy of Kevin McLeod. We leave you this week with a cover of Jedar Guanta Udinziza by random artist Mike Taihora. Thanks for listening. Until next week, Saveri Salama! All my love, I know, all my love, I know I've lived in the hills of Zagreb. All my love, all my love, I know, all my love, I know I've lived in the hills of Zagreb. Oh, who make a Jiza